You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, Genesis chapter 40. You'll remember last week we left off with uh, Joseph's temptation uh, with Potiphar's wife and him being sold into Egypt and then um, rising to power within Potiphar's house. Um, and then that drawing the attention of Potiphar's wife and him resisting that temptation. We said last week that um, the Lord remains with believers at all times, allowing them to remain faithful in times of uncertainty, in times of temptation, and in times of hardship. That the real theme of chapter 39 is that the Lord is with Joseph, whether it's in Potiphar's house, whether it's in the midst of his temptation, as Joseph draws upon the fact that to sin uh, with Potiphar's wife would be to sin against God who is with him. Um, and then ultimately we see, um, we see Potiphar, uh, or we see Joseph uh, ending up in prison and scriptures being very clear that God remains with him there as well. That uh, even in the midst of prison, God remains with him and continues to work kindness with him. So the theme of the chapter being that the Lord is with Joseph um, we see that time of prosperity and uncertainty as he rises to power in Potiphar's house. Um, we said that he found ways to work hard and to glorify God despite the fact that his circumstances weren't what he would choose. Uh, we talked about us as believers striving to to work hard in the midst of our circumstances and to point others to uh, God's glory in that. Um, we said that in the midst of his temptation that he's reminded, which reminds us that our sin is hurtful not only to God, but hurtful to others, and that it was his predetermined standards about not hurting Potiphar and not breaking the trust of Potiphar that helped guard him every single day when he was tempted. And then ultimately in his hardship, um, we should expect false accusations as well when we're seeking to be obedient to God, and we should accept trials as God acting in love as chapter 39, verse 21 reminded us. The application last week, while our faithfulness is not always met with immediate reward, we can take comfort in knowing that our reward is certain to come. Which brings us to Genesis chapter 40, and we're going to read the text this morning, but we're actually going to start in chapter 39 um, to recap the setting of Joseph being in prison. And so it says in chapter 39, verse 20, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the, prisoner, uh, the, keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So God remains with Joseph in the midst of this trial, remains with him in prison, allows him to, to come to success, ultimately allowing uh, whatever he does to succeed within the prison, which brings us to chapter 40, verse 1. It says, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream had its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. 
So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And pause right there for a second. It's interesting to me to note that Joseph, who is mistreated, falsely accused, in a place that he doesn't belong, is very sensitive to the people around him, right? It says, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Why are your faces downcast today? The temptation, I think, for us oftentimes is when we're in the midst of troubles and difficulties is to focus inwardly on how we're struggling and we're oblivious to the things going on in the lives of other people around us. Joseph, who has every right to have a downtrodden face, who, who has every right to himself be troubled, very sensitive to those around us. We'll talk more about that. Verse 9, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it had budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days, and three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost uh, basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the baskets on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker amongst his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Our summary sentence for this morning, finding ministry and contentment in trials. Summary sentence, we can persevere through trials by recognizing the unique ministry opportunities that come our way, while also remembering that God controls our future. We can persevere through trials by recognizing the unique ministry opportunities that come our way, while also remembering that God controls our future. And For kids, when bad things happen, remember two things. God is always in control. And number two, others are hurting and we can help. That's one of the, the, these two things jump out to me predominantly in this chapter. As, I, as I'm reading and studying this week, um, the fact that Joseph is seemingly acting like a, a prison chaplain in this situation, um, that, that he's, he's tasked to serve the, the prisoners, that he's been faithful with the little things that have been given to him, and he's been able to rise to as much power as possible as a prisoner, but he's been given tasks and responsibilities, but, but once again, he's going further than he's been asked to do. Um, he, he probably has a little bit more freedom maybe than some of the other prisoners. He's been tasked with maybe the, the more preferable jobs in the prison. 
But even in the midst of going about his daily duties, he's very sensitive to the needs of others. And I don't think this is the only time that he has a ministerial type question and answer and, uh, and conversation with other prisoners. This is probably just his normal pattern. Um, he seems to be in the business of encouraging others in the midst of their plight. Um, and so you've got a, a man here who, who has every right to sulk and every right to, uh, to sit in the corner and, and um, feel sorry for himself. That, that he's being mistreated, he's innocent, he hasn't done anything worthy of this, and yet he's very intentional to seek and help others who are going through similar situations. Uh, especially in this situation, it seems that the cupbearer ends up being innocent, and so he and Joseph are very much alike. They're both in this position wrongfully. Um, and so he's very intentional to reach out and to see his trial as a unique way to minister to others. And then secondly, as the dreams are being talked about, um, there's great angst by the cupbearer and the baker because they're believing that these dreams have something to do with their future. And Joseph is very reassuring about the fact that ultimately God or Yahweh, the Old Testament God of the Hebrews, um, that is, is now starting to be known by other nations as, as they're coming into their own as a nation, it's starting to become more common to reference the God of, of Israel. Um, Joseph's basically conveying to them that the interpretations belong to the God that I worship. Um, the future that you're wanting to know about ultimately is determined and controlled uh, by the God that I worship. And so he invites them to tell him their dreams so that he can then convey the future to them or the interpretation to them. Some introductory notes to kind of set the stage for this chapter before we jump into the text. First of all, the stage is set based on the events of chapter 39. God is causing Joseph to succeed. So we read back in chapter 39 how God is overseeing this whole process of Joseph even being in a position to interact with these two people, right? That God is allowing everything that Joseph does to succeed. So when Joseph has an idea, it's the right idea. It's the best idea. Uh, when Joseph makes a suggestion and the, the prison guards take up him up on his suggestion, it works. Um, so God is allowing everything that he does to succeed and he continues to do that as the um, dreams are told to him, and he's able to be successful in interpreting those dreams. He's been elevated back to the highest position in his current situation. Um, so he was the, the top dog in Potiphar's house, and then he's accused, and then he's thrown into prison. And before long, he rises to being the top dog in the prison. Um, that the, the head guard doesn't have to think about anything, do anything. He's basically given Joseph tasks and responsibilities that make his life a lot easier. But lest we think this is the, the, the type of position that Joseph envisions for his long-term future, he's very clear in talking with the cupbearer, I want out of here, right? We don't have any of that really going on in Potiphar's house while he's a slave. It may have been a situation where he could be very content long-term in that situation, um, that he had become more of a, um, an employee versus a slave. Here in this position, though, he is very anxious to get out of this situation. Being the best... Uh, prisoner doesn't mean that he wants to continue to do that long term. Um, so we can kind of see his desire to get out of this situation, even though God has blessed him and putting him in the most preferred position um, in this situation. Uh, the cupbearer or the butler and baker are important offices in Egypt. Both of these positions, the cupbearer and the baker, both of them are tied to the life of Pharaoh. Um, they are both tasked with the responsibilities of guarding the plate and guarding the cup. So if somebody wants to 
assassinate the Pharaoh, it would have most likely come through the act of poisoning. And so they would employ these important people, men of integrity, men that they trusted, uh, people that, that were highly valued, um, and they would put them in charge of making sure and filtering everything that came to them in far, as far as what to eat and what to drink. Um, we know, looking ahead in the Old Testament, that Nehemiah was, was a cupbearer for the king um, and that he had the responsibilities of making sure that nothing harmful came uh, the way of the king. And so both of these guys are put into prison, most likely because something slipped through. Uh, some type of uh, harmful act or intent was discovered, and it wasn't clear which one of these guys was responsible. Um, they're both held in prison for a time while the charges and evidence are considered. Uh, we don't know exactly how long they're in prison. We don't know how, ex- how long exactly Joseph had to interact with them. But it does say in chapter 40, um, it says in verse 4, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, and they continued for some time in custody. So this isn't something that took place over a weekend, right? Like they don't get thrown in on Friday and then have a dream and then get out on, on uh, the, the next week after three days. This is something that they may have been in prison for a while. Um, as the, the charges are considered, as the evidence is considered, they're both held in prison for a time, and Joseph is able to build relationships with these two men. Um, it's also worth noting that dreams are extremely important in the Egyptian culture. Both of these guys are very distraught over their inability to interpret their dreams. Um, it says that, uh, he says, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Most of us wouldn't be distraught if we were in any situation and we had a dream and we didn't know the meaning of the dream, right? Dreams don't carry that type of uh, authority in our life, in our culture. They don't carry that type of value, um, Some of us share our dreams with others. Some of us never talk about our dreams. It's just not something in our culture that's considered uh, all that valuable. In the Egyptian culture, it's huge, uh, especially if they can connect the fact that it's more than just uh, a random uh, dream. The fact that they both dreamed something very similar on the same night. Remember, we talked about the repetitive nature of dreams uh, begins to show that there really is something special going on with them. As Joseph has two dreams about his brothers worshiping him, that kind of alludes to the fact that this is more than just a random thought that he has in his sleep. And so both the butler and the baker are very disturbed, and they want interpretations. And had they not been in prison, in the Egyptian culture, they would have had access to astrologers and, and wise men that could come and attempt to interpret. And so they feel cut off from the type of people that they really need to be around right now. We've had dreams, and we don't know what they mean, and because we're in prison, we can't gain access to the type of people that we need to interpret these for us. And that's where Joseph has value to them, as he comes in and is able to express his ability to interpret dreams. Now, there's only two Israelites who are known for their dream interpretations in Scripture, Joseph being one, and then who would the other be that's able to interpret dreams? Daniel, okay, and, and, it's, and it's significant to note that these two guys are serving um, non-Israelite kings in cultures where dream interpretation was very valuable, okay? So we could speculate as to, uh, well, why weren't they really interpreting dreams for Israelite kings, and, and, and why don't we have that taking place today? Why is that not considered a spiritual gift? I think it's unique to this situation 
based on the foreign culture that they found themselves in, that God allows something that's valuable in that culture to be used by his people in order to elevate them very quickly into power in those cultures, right? Both Joseph and Daniel find themselves elevated into important statuses because of the fact that they can interpret dreams. So in both cultures, it's really important to be able to interpret dreams. The kings seemingly surround themselves with people who are supposed to be able to do this. And so Joseph and Daniel both are able to uh, be elevated to positions of power because God gives them the ability to do so in those cultures. Okay, so that's kind of where we're at as far as the stage being set for this, um, this account in chapter 40. And so we'll jump right in um, to our notes Um, The first thing here, viewing trials as an outlet for new ministries. We have a responsibility as believers to view trials as an outlet for new ministries. And for our kids, when we are hurting, we should help others who are hurting too. We view trials as an outlet for new ministries. And that's exactly what Joseph does here as he's thrust into prison against his own will, against any correct accusations about him, uh, he begins to automatically seek new ways to serve um, and, and new ways to minister. All right, viewing trials as an outlet for new ministries. Number one, trials can either be a time for us to sulk or to serve. As I stated already, Joseph saw the similarities between himself and the butler and the baker, men who were claiming integrity and false accusation. So you've got Joseph, as he begins to strike up conversations with these two, and he's building friendships and relationships with them, um, more than likely they begin to dialogue about the fact that, hey, we're in here, and and we shouldn't be in here. Um, We don't deserve to be in here. As men of integrity, we haven't done anything to deserve this. Now, if they're having that conversation, one's telling the truth and one's lying here. Uh, because one is freed and one is punished eventually. But Joseph's very intentional to serve rather than sulk in this position. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, Paul reminds us, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Paul reminds us here, he says, as believers, you keep working hard, you keep doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. You work for God and not for men. If there's false accusations, you don't worry about it. You keep serving Christ, the wrongdoer will be paid back. More than likely, this prison falls under the authority of Potiphar. Uh, the way the language is written, that, that more than likely Potiphar, uh, at the end of the day, is really responsible for the prison that Joseph is in. And so Potiphar, again, probably uh, under the belief that Joseph's innocent, allows Joseph to once again gain as much power as possible in his current circumstance, in his current situation. Joseph gets thrown into prison and can easily have the attitude that says, you know what, just forget it. Like, I, I tried the whole be content and, and do what was right, and it got me thrown even further into prison. Right? Like I was already a slave and now I'm, now I'm a, a, a bound slave in prison. Um, I don't even have jobs to do outside of this prison. I'm not working for an individual. I'm, I'm being treated as a criminal. And yet he continues to work hard. He continues to persevere. He continues to trust 
uh, looking ahead to a verse that he can't even cling to, but a principle that he seemingly understands that eventually the wrongdoer will be punished, that eventually Potiphar's wife will be dealt with. And it'd be interesting to note if there was any conversations between Joseph and Potiphar's wife once he rises to second in command in Egypt, right? Because vengeance certainly could have taken place. We talk a lot about how Joseph doesn't seek vengeance on his brothers once he's in, in a position of authority. We don't have any evidence that he sought vengeance against Potiphar's wife. We don't have any indication that he sought vengeance against the cupbearer who forgets him for two years, right? Joseph is just a model citizen for us as believers to look to, a man who works hard despite his circumstances, works hard when it's not noticed, works hard when he's falsely accused, and keeps this this perspective that he's working for God and not for men. Because right here, he's probably still working for Potiphar in some sense. And yet he continues to work hard and continues to serve and continues to do do his job well, despite the fact that he's working for a man who didn't believe him and put him into prison. Joseph's a great example to us. He saw the similarities between himself and the butler and the baker, and he ministers to him. He reaches out to him, and rather than sulking and and focusing on his own situation, he looks to them and sees their struggles and sees their hurts and reaches out to them. Rather than focusing on himself, he's sensitive to the hurts of others, which I think should draw our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And in verse 3, I always love this passage because I think it, it also, again, gives new meaning to the trials and the difficulties that God oftentimes brings us through and why he allows those things to come into our life. In chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. And I think, I think God is comforting Joseph. He continues, to, uh, he continues to give Joseph enough to remind Joseph that he's still with him, right? Like, he hasn't gone completely silent in the fact that, that Joseph can look around and see his success even in the midst of his trials. And I think that's a nod to God and his sovereignty and his goodness and how he's working things out for Joseph. And, and so God continues to help Joseph see that, and so God is comforting Joseph enough for Joseph to then want to comfort others. Because it says, he comforts us in our affliction, back in verse four, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. What's the idea there? The idea there, Paul is saying, is that God oftentimes brings us through things and allows us to be comforted in those things so that we then can look and see others going through similar situations and circumstances and be God's extension of comfort to those people. Anytime we're in trials and circumstances, those of us that have persevered through those, there have probably been people in the midst of that trial or circumstance that we were able to lean back on and fall back on and receive comfort. Right? God comforts us through other believers. And he, he brings us through trials and oftentimes brings us through trials for the specific purpose of being able to comfort other people. 
There's been trials and circumstances that people in this church have gone through that, that allows them to now provide the comfort and assurance that somebody else may need down the road. Um, God does that. He extends comfort to us so that we can then be used by him to be comforters of others. And I think that's what Joseph's able to do here in this situation. He's in the midst of a trial. He's in the midst of a situation where he should have a downtrodden face, where he should be discouraged, and yet God has been comforting him. And so instead of being the, the, the sulky prisoner that, these, uh, that the baker and the cupbearer encounter, instead he's a prisoner that, despite the fact that he's falsely accused, seems to have a good outlook on life, continues to believe that his God is in control. A God who, who's in control and yet has allowed one of his children to be falsely accused and imprisoned and stripped away from his family. They encounter a man who's at his deepest, darkest situation, and yet he's still saying, you know what, God's in control of this. God, God holds the future. Um, I, I'm trusting in this God who I believe interpretations belong to. Joseph had every opportunity to sulk, and yet he finds new opportunities to serve. Number two, trials can either be a time for our faith to be discouraged or demonstrated. It's an, uh, it's an opportunity for us to either be discouraged, and that's certainly how the enemy, how Satan would desire for trials to work itself out in our life, for our faith to be discouraged, for our faith to be attacked. But what we also know from Scripture is that it's an opportunity for our faith to be demonstrated. We see Joseph immediately turning to God in time of need. God is his first outlet for help. Right? It says he, um, he came to them in the morning. He saw they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And immediately Joseph turns to God being the answer to this problem. And I was thinking, with Joseph's position and Joseph's authority, it's probably not too far-fetched to think that he could have sent for interpreters to come and listen to these dreams. He probably has, I mean, he's, he's been given every freedom possible within this prison. He's been given charge over all the prisoners it's very likely, and again, we talked about him being in the prison or the king's prison, right? So these aren't your, your low-life people that um, are just dragged off the street for doing uh, criminal things within Egypt. These are, these are people of, of high rank and importance. These are the, these are the prisoners that are going to get the best treatment because of the positions they've held. And so Joseph has charge of all of this, and so I believe that he easily could have resorted to man's efforts and said, you know what? You guys are downtrodden. You guys are important to the Pharaoh. Let me see what I can do. Let me go see if I can get some of the people that you would have normally relied upon to interpret your dreams. Let me see if I can pull some strings and get those guys in here to do so. But the fact that he turns immediately and says, you know what, you can tell me your dreams. Uh, God can interpret these dreams for you shows us that he's not lacking at all in the area of faith in this, in this part of his life that he's not become discouraged thinking, where is God? What is God doing? He immediately turns to him as the point of answer for this situation. I think it's also worth noting that he's confident in his ability to interpret the dreams. Why would he be confident? Well, because he's had dreams before, right? And he's been able to seemingly interpret those. Now, he hasn't seen those come to fruition yet, but I think that even more shows us the faith that he still has in, in, in his God, 
He's saying, you know what? Um, you can tell me your dreams because I actually can interpret dreams. And it would have been easy for him to say, we're going to need to call upon Pharaoh's people because even if I thought I could interpret dreams, my dreams didn't even come true. Right? He could have easily looked at it and said, you know what? I've had dreams like you too. Bad thing is I thought I knew the interpretation. I thought I knew how that was going to turn out, and it didn't turn out that way, so I'm not your guy. I'm not the best guy to try to interpret these for you. Let me see if I can find somebody else. But no, we see Joseph demonstrating his faith. He steps up and says, you know what? Interpretations belong to God. God's in control of future events. And you know what? You can tell me your dreams because I actually have experience in this. I know how to interpret dreams. God gives me the ability and the power to do so. We don't see any doubt or any discouragement about Joseph's faith here. Instead, we actually see confidence, him demonstrating the faith that he has still in the God that he's been serving. And the implication for us out of this, as we view trials as an outlet for new ministries, that trials bring opportunity for ministry if we will remain sensitive to those around us. Trials bring opportunity for ministry if we will remain sensitive to those around us. And this is true on the smallest scale and on the greatest scale. I mean, as, as small and as simple as um, having your circumstances and your plans altered because of something like a flat tire and, and having to reorchestrate your day because your car's not functioning the way that you intended for it to or the way that it's designed to. It oftentimes puts us in contact with people that we had no intention of being in contact with that day. You know, we go down to a service station, we pull up, and we say, hey, I got to get my tire fixed. I'm interacting with people automatically at that point that I had no intention or plan to interact with. And we've heard, we've heard stories about how people can take those situations and they end up interacting with somebody who's, who's going through something, and, and all of a sudden, the conversation that that person has is extremely encouraging and uplifting and, and possibly presents even further ministry opportunities with the people that they've come in contact with. People that find out that they've that they're been diagnosed with cancer, right, for the next six to eight months as they go through treatments, all of a sudden, their calendar is drastically changed if they were thinking that far ahead to begin with. Events that they had planned are now having to be rearranged and moved because there's trips to the doctor and there's treatments that have to be received. But in addition to that, there's doctors and nurses that they are interacting with that they would have never interacted with before. And I can't help but think about what what Paul says in Philippians chapter one. So if you wanna turn in your Bibles over to Philippians chapter one, Paul's relaying the same idea um, that I'm describing. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul has been imprisoned uh, for the gospel. He's been falsely accused of um, trying to create division and um, hostility, and so they've bound him in prison. And it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Notice Paul doesn't say, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to make my life better, right? Like, like he's not saying, hey, it's great living in prison. Like, I've got a lot of other business opportunities. I've got uh, a lot of things happening in my life, and it's been really good for me to be in prison. No, he says it's been good for the gospel that I've been put in prison so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
Paul says there are guards of Rome who I've had chance to interact with who now know the name of Christ and the significance of the name of Christ because I'm placed here in this prison. Verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says, it's, it's been good that I've been imprisoned. Not necessarily good for me, not necessarily good for my health, not necessarily good for my future. He says, it's been good for the gospel that I've been asked to go through this. And that's a, that's a perspective that as believers we're called to have as well, that we view trials as an opportunity for new ministry. That the trial may not make our life necessarily better, but that God, as he works things for good, is oftentimes working for the good of the advancement of the gospel. But it takes us being sensitive to the needs of those around us as we're going through that. Otherwise, we go to the doctor, we go through all the treatments, and we never have a significant conversation, and all we're thinking about is, how do I get out of the cancer? How do I get my, my, my flat tire fixed? Right? That, like That's the norm. That's the default. It's, how do I relieve myself of the trial? Rarely do we go into a trial or find ourselves in the midst of the trial thinking, why does God have me here? And who are the people that I can potentially minister to in the midst of this bad circumstance or this bad situation? That's exactly what Joseph does, though. He says, okay, I'm in prison. While I'm here, I'm going to work hard, do the best that I can, and find people who are downtrodden as well and seek to pick them up and seek to encourage them. Paul says, while I'm in prison for trying to share the gospel, I'm going to keep on sharing the gospel with the new audience that God has given to me. Right? He just keeps plugging along. He says, hey, I was outside prison sharing the gospel and trying to encourage people to share the gospel without fear, too. Now that I'm in prison, I'm actually increasing my ministry. Like I've got new people that have not heard the gospel that are probably confined to this job and spend just as much time in the prison as the prisoners do and and don't get out much. And here I am sharing the gospel with them. And people that are in prison and people that hear about me being in prison, they're they're being empowered to share the gospel too because they see Paul, me doing it, and their their fear is being removed because they see me setting a good example. New ministry opportunities are afforded to us in the midst of trials often, but we have to be sensitive to those around us that may be hurting, that may need us in the midst of that trial. Number two, as believers, we view God as in control of future events. We view God as in control of future events. For kids, when we are worried about the future, we should remember that God controls the future. Right. So, so both of these things are how Joseph survives in, uh, in prison. Remember we said that that in the course of being in Egypt, he spends uh, 10 to 12 years uh, of time in prison. Um, and, and he's bound and he's shackled and he's got a lot of time to think and a lot of time to be discouraged. And, and yet we find him surviving in prison and, and surviving with a, with a good mentality, a mentality that continues to exude trust in God. And how's he doing that? Well, it starts with him seeing his, his predicament as an opportunity versus punishment. He sees it as an opportunity to minister to others. And then he continues to rely upon the fact that God is in control of future events. Number one, when our future feels unclear, we can trust the one who holds the future. Right? Joseph's quick to recognize God as the author of the future. He draws upon this idea that dreams and interpretations 
and thus the future belong to God. He confesses that God's hold on the future, um, he, he confesses God's hold on the future prior to him revealing the future. Right? Like, up to this point, Joseph hasn't seen a dream come true yet. And he doesn't make these proclamations after the fact, right? He doesn't say, hey, give me, give me your dreams. I'll see what I can do. And then he gives his best interpretation, and then it comes true. He doesn't then come back and say, hey, interpretations belong to God, right? And, and we could applaud him for it, right? Like, hey, you gave credit to God for what God did in your life. After he gave you interpretations and after you saw them came true, then you gave credit to God. But he doesn't do that, right? He gives credit to God before he ever tries to interpret the dream. He says, God gives the power for interpretations. God holds the future. God is the only one who knows. And he's saying this before he's seen his dreams come true and before he even knows the dreams of the butler and the baker. He's clearly viewing God as in control of future events. He hasn't lost hope for his own future. Right? He hasn't given up on his own dreams that God has given to him. And we see God controlling all of the events in this story. The timing of Joseph's imprisonment and his rise to power in prison coinciding with the timing and the placement of the butler and baker. Right? God, God is at work all through this chapter, the timing and everything being perfect. Um, and, and I think Moses draws attention to those details. So if we go back to Genesis, it says, Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry, and he put them in custody, but not just any house, the house of the captain of the guard, not just any prison, but the prison where Joseph was confined. And who's put in charge of these two? Could have been anybody, but it says the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And God's controlling all of it. He uses both of these individuals. He uses this circumstance ultimately to gain the ear of Pharaoh, right? And Joseph doesn't know that yet. And we as the reader, if we're reading it for the first time, we don't know this. But all of this is being done ultimately to grab the ear of Pharaoh, Right? He's going to use these two and he's going to use these dreams to gain the ear of Pharaoh and ultimately gain Joseph's power. The fact that God gives these dreams, dreams that can't be interpreted, creates a need for Joseph in the life of the butler and the baker. I mean, at the end of the day, who cares what happens to these two prisoners? I mean, who cares? Joseph's over a bunch of prisoners that are probably in for a while, get released. Others that don't get released, they get killed, they get punished. He's in prison for 10 years. These are two prisoners that are probably not that uh, different from other prisoners that find themselves under his charge. Some come in for a while, they're proven innocent, they're let out. Others come in for a while, proven guilty, and they're killed for it. The only significance for these dreams and the only significant role these two individuals play in this is that it ultimately gains Pharaoh's ear two years later when Pharaoh starts to have dreams. God is setting the stage like a, like a chess player. He's putting pieces in position to strike. And at the right time, at the right opportunity, when the famine is about to come, God puts it in place for Joseph to rise to power. And, and, and think about this. It, it's not just that, that the famine was coming arbitrarily. Like God brings the famine at the right time to drive Israel to Egypt at the right time so that they can spend... No more and no less time needed in Egypt. What's the purpose for them being in Egypt? Remember, we talked about this. So they won't get consumed by the Canaanites, 
right? So, so God says, I need about 400 years for you to be in Egypt so that you can grow and have a lot of babies and they'll grow up and have babies and they'll have babies to the point that you're a threat to Egypt, that you're that type of nation. Otherwise, you're this little group of people that the Shechemites say, hey, why don't you come marry with us and we'll basically just let you absorb into us and, and you'll be gone and done away with. God says, no, you're gonna be a great nation. And I'm gonna need about 400 years for that to happen, Right? Well, you say, well, why not any 400 years? Remember, they can't go back to the land of Canaan until what? Until the, the sin of the Amorites is full, right? God, God in all of his, his justice says, you know what? I don't wanna punish the Canaanites until it's the proper time. So think about all these events that are happening. These two guys having a dream and the only purpose really is for Pharaoh to recognize that Joseph can interpret dreams so that Joseph can come to power at the right time so that Israel ends up in Egypt for the right 400 years, so that all during that time, the sin of the Canaanites is filling up to the point where it's absolutely right and absolutely appropriate for God to kill them all. This is all purposeful. This is all, the timing of this is all significant. This is a God who controls the, the events of history for purposes and then holds the future for significant purposes too. And Joseph says, you know what? I'm trusting in that God. In the midst of prison, in the midst of being falsely accused, I'm not losing faith in a God who seemingly does everything in his own time for great purposes. And God's controlling all of these events. And he controls the future of the people in this story, right? He controls the future of the butler, the cupbearer. He comes out and, and says, here's, here's my dream, right? Like He says, I've had a dream about basically being back in my normal position, and, I, and I'm pulling grapes and I'm, I'm squeezing grapes and putting them in the cup and I'm serving it to Pharaoh. And Joseph says, you're right, this is a good thing. Um, you're gonna be placed back into your position in three days. And God controls the future of the butler. He's found to be innocent and he's released back into his proper position. And God controls the future of the baker, right? The baker says, hey, that sounds great. I hope my dream means something similar. And so he starts to tell his dream. He says, you know what? I'm, I'm carrying baskets of goodies and pastries and, and all kinds of breads on my head and, and I'm taking them to the Pharaoh. But what happens? There's birds eating them out of my, out of my head, right? Like they're, they're coming down and they're swooping down and I can't get rid of them. And Joseph says, this isn't as good for you. He says, the cupbearer uh, to the butler, he says, he's gonna raise your head. And then the text says that he tells the same thing to the butler, except he goes further and says, he's gonna raise it right off of your body right? Like you're going to perish for this. And if you look at the two dreams, the, the dreams seem to point to the character of these two men. One was very intentional to make sure that what he took for the Pharaoh made it to the Pharaoh without any interruption. But the baker, whether it was intentional or unintentional, doesn't seem to do his job well, right? Like as he's trying to take this stuff to the Pharaoh, birds are swooping in. He's not doing a great job of protecting. And that's his job to protect the plate, to make, no, make sure no foreign objects make, them, make their way into his food. And the dream indicates that he's guilty of not doing a very good job at his job. And so the interpretation of his dream is that he's gonna perish. So God controls the future of the cupbearer. He controls the future of the baker. And God also controls the future of Joseph, right? Like you got innocent people leaving, you got guilty people being punished, and then Joseph remains innocent but continues to wait for his release. It's not the right time yet. It's not the right time for Joseph to be released. Here's the irony of the story is that while Joseph can predict the future of the other prisoners, he can't predict his own future. 
right? And what does that tell us? It tells us that, that Joseph's not the one that's in control. Joseph's not the one that's given these dreams. He's not the one that's making the futures of the butler and the baker. He's simply the messenger boy, right? There's no power in and of himself. Joseph's saying, hey, this belongs to God. If it didn't belong to God, I could predict when I'm getting out of here. And if it belonged to me, I could make myself get out of here now. But he can't, right? He's limited in his power. He's limited in his abilities. He knows what's going to happen for these two, but he doesn't know what's going to happen for himself. When our future feels unclear, we can trust the one who holds the future. Number two, when others seem to forget us, we can trust the one who always remembers. If you're reading for this for the first time, you're thinking, Joseph's about to get out of here. And the sad case is that the butler doesn't return the favor that Joseph gave to him. Says that he did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You know, and I got to thinking too, how easy it is sometimes for us to to share prayer requests on a Sunday, talk about things that we're going through, talking about things that we're struggling with, and and we can be very good and intentional about praying for him right here on a Sunday. But I think a lot of us have experienced the the fallenness still, the 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 sinful remains of the people in this room in that we are very good at forgetting, right? We're very good at forgetting when people are hurting within our church. That's just, that's just part of the flesh that God's still cleaning up. And until Jesus comes back, we're gonna struggle with being insensitive towards each other, right? We're gonna struggle with, with really putting ourselves out there and saying, hey, this is going on with me. This is going on with my family. This could be in the context of Sunday. This could be in the context of an accountability group. This could be in the context of a C group. And really just saying, hey, this is a big deal to me. This is a big deal to our family. And we get one prayer time over it and then nobody else asks us about it. But nobody else seems concerned about it. And it can be very easy to get discouraged and frustrated and feel like we've been forgotten. That, that we're going through something and nobody else seems to care. And I'm sure that's how Joseph felt, right? Like he, he has this great encounter and probably starts to think, wow, like this is God. This is God definitely orchestrating everything and putting me in the right position here. And I'm having this conversation with a guy who basically sees Pharaoh and talks to him every day when he brings him his drink. I'm getting out of here. And he, and he sees him away and, he, and that third day comes and he waves and says, see ya, like don't forget, don't forget. And probably in the, in the following days, he's, every time the, the jail cell opens up, he's thinking, ah, oh, this, is, this is my exit point. Like, he sent word to come get me. And, and, and a few days go by, and then a week goes by, and then several weeks go by, and then months go by, and then a year goes by. And he's been forgotten. And that's really the point where you could say, Joseph would be justified here to lose faith. Like, He's been completely forgotten in this prison for two years. On top of the other eight to 10 that he's already been in prison, for two years now, his, his, his best chance of getting out has seemed to have evaporated. I mean, it's just, it's just disappeared. And yet Joseph continues to remain faithful. He hopes that the butler will be sensitive to him in the same way he showed sensitivity. He's claiming to the butler, he's like, like hey, you're about to get out, you're innocent. Hey, I'm innocent too. Don't forget to tell Pharaoh about me. But as we said earlier, he doesn't react negatively when the butler forgets him. 
Despite getting his hopes up, he doesn't seek revenge. We don't have any indication that he went after this guy for waiting two years once he's put into power. Pharaoh says, here's second in command. He could have easily said, now that I'm second in command, this guy's awful. He doesn't remember things. Let's get rid of him. And your buddy Potiphar, his wife is seductive and a liar as well. We need to get rid of her. Doesn't do that. He doesn't go after anybody. Doesn't go after his brothers, but doesn't go after the other people either in his life that have caused harm to him. I think the important thing that we see in in both 39 and 40 is that while God does not always remove us from suffering, he does remain with us in the midst of it. So the implication for us is that trials force us to decide if we really believe that God is God. And I want to explain what I mean by that. Trials force us to decide if we really believe that God is God. I want to take you to, uh, as we get ready to close here, I want to take you to a couple other Old Testament passages that really draw on the fact that sovereignty or control over history and the future is required for one to really be able to claim to be God. Meaning, if I'm really going to be God by the definition that we understand God to be, it means that I have to control the events of history and have my hand on the future. Okay, And that's what we see in um, Daniel chapter 2. So if we jump ahead in the, New, in the Old Testament to Daniel, the other Israelite who's able to interpret dreams. You'll remember in that situation, Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream. Nobody can interpret it. He's getting frustrated. He's ready to just clean house and get new wise people in place uh, because he's frustrated that nobody can interpret his dream. And so in Daniel chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar felt he's exhausted his resources. He's really troubled by his dreams the same way the butler and the baker are. I need to know what the future holds. Nobody can tell me that I'm gonna get rid of you and find people that can. So then it says in verse 25, then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? Okay, so this, this, this one guy, basically this Babylonian, puts himself out there and says, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I think I found somebody that can do this. Right, you're about to kill them all, but I think I found one guy who can tell you your dream. And the king says, okay, can you do this? Verse 27, Daniel answered the king and said, no. And I'm sure the Babylonian was like, wait a second, you just told me that you could do this, right? He says, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. Right? So, so Daniel says, look, what you're asking, no human being can do. And there's only one being in existence that can do what you're asking. And that's the God that we worship in, in, in Judah. It's the God that we worship as Israelites. He says, nobody can really tell you the future except for the one true God. And then if we jump to Isaiah 41, we see God relating these truths to us. In Isaiah chapter 41, in verse 21, 
God is basically asking people to challenge him with their idols. And God says, set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. So bring your idols and tell us what's about to happen. Tell us the former things, the things that have happened in history. Tell us what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Basically, God's saying, hey, bring your idols, bring anything that you can that can tell us the significance of history and how it connects with the future. Like, tell us, tell us about a God that you worship that, that is in control of all of the world's events, things that have happened and things that are to come and how those things connect into one big story. Tell, tell me about a God who's in control of that type of thing. Verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. If you have the ability to connect history with the future and you know all things and are working all things, well, then that would make you God. So tell us how you can do this. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Verse 24, behold, you're nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. God says, you're going to search for this and you can try to find this. And there's no other person, no other being, nothing that can connect history and the future together like I can. I'm the one who's in control of everything. If you jump ahead in Isaiah to 44, Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 7 and 8. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Then if you skip ahead to chapter 46, God continuing to say, bring something before me that can, that can know the future like I can. Isaiah 46, verse 8, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. See, when we're in the midst of trials, we have the opportunity to really convey to others that the faith that we have in our God is valid because we are believing in a being that we say connects the past and the future together for his glory and for our good. It's a God who's been working in times past and a God who continues to work into the future, a future that may be uncertain to us, a future in the midst of our trials that we're thinking, will that good future ever come? We're believing and trusting in a being that we say knows the future, holds the future, controls the future, and does good things for his children. So in the midst of trials, don't lose sight of the fact that it's an opportunity to find new ministry opportunities people that we interact with in the midst of that trial that otherwise we probably wouldn't have. It's a chance for us to point them to the God that we say holds the future. Because as they see us going through this trial, they ought to hear us talking about a God who we feel secure in, a God who's working good for us, 
Um, a, a God who protects us from being so downtrodden, a God who protects us from being so discouraged, a God who we can say connects the past with the future for our good. Application for us out of this passage. Two things. One, look for opportunities to serve in all situations. Look for opportunities to serve in all situations. All right, so you're not, you're not fit for ministry once you've come out of trials. And now, hey, we, you know, we've been able to deal with some stuff as a family. Now we can serve and, and minister to others. It's in the midst of trials that we're oftentimes best equipped, best equipped to serve others. And number two, remember that a good God controls the future in a good way. All right, um, we're going to end things just a little bit different today. So I'm going to go ahead and give you our family worship questions to discuss. And uh, Adam McLeod will post these this week. Um, What are some ways we could help others as a family based on things that we have gone through as a family? Okay, so spending some time as a family kind of thinking through what's unique about our family and the things that God has done in our family and how could those things possibly be used to help others who may go through similar situations, right? Um, I, I know uh, Ben and Andrea have mentioned at times, at times before that there was a, a lot of struggle in their family to have children, right? There was a long period of time where they were unable to have kids. Um, both from a, uh, just a, a, a point where God hadn't given life to them and then also at a time where they, where they had experienced miscarriages. And, and I know that they've, they've expressed before that they are available for that type of conversation within this church, people who are struggling to have children, people who have, um, who have had to bear the sorrow of miscarriages. I know the Longs went through a long time there where, where there was a, a lot of uncertainty surrounding Adam's job and a lot of uncertainty surrounding the income and, and God carried them through. There's all kinds of unique situations in our church where God has comforted us in the midst of trials and we're now equipped to comfort others who go through similar situations. So I'd love for us to spend some time thinking what's unique about our family and things that God has done in our family that would allow us to minister to others or help others who might go through something similar. And then number two, what are some bad things that could happen in our family's future? And how would we be able to trust God in spite of those bad things? This is especially relevant for our kids, kids who maybe haven't been able to remember those trials as a family, right? Especially from our younger kids, as they're growing, they may not have a a big reservoir to pull from yet of how God's been faithful in the midst of bad circumstances. So for them, it may be uh, role-playing a little bit and looking to the future and saying, this is what could happen if dad were to lose his job or if, uh, if one of us were to get sick. How could we continue to trust God in the midst of those bad circumstances? Our kids need to know. Our kids need to know and be prepared and ready that when bad circumstances come, ministry opportunities come with it. And then when bad circumstances come, it gives us a chance to demonstrate our faith in a God who holds the future. Um, So we can use both of those points of discussion um, for this week. Um, But what I wanted us to close with today, since we didn't take time, we actually ended up doing this as as one group, um, but originally we were going to do it into, uh, we were going to pray in multiple groups. Um, What I want us to do is to close in a time of corporate prayer. Um, and I want us to pray specifically about the future of our church, okay? So thinking in terms of a God who controls the future, I want us to think in terms of praying specifically today for some of the things that we are desiring as a church. Um, and so I've got three points of, of prayer for us. Um, as we look towards our goals that we set, and we're into year three of our five-year plan, so um, 
we've completed two years and we've just started the third year uh, of our five-year plan. Um, and we've seen God answer prayers, right? One of our goals was to raise up new deacons and we've recently installed new deacons and, and deacons that have been able to replace um, Chris and Melissa who've moved off to Uganda. Um, but for us to continue to pursue these goals, goals that are, that are really wrapped around the gospel, right? Like these goals don't benefit us necessarily as a church. We're not looking for bigger and better things as a church. We're looking to be used in bigger and better and greater ways. Um, that we pray this morning for new families um, and new converts. Uh, we, we desire to grow as a church so that we can, we can plant other churches, right? Um, I know one of Chris's greatest fears in, in sacrificing the next three to five years is that a church in Uganda never materializes. Um, he said that to me. He says, I hope that, uh, that our effort is not in vain, me and Melissa going, going before, that it's not in vain, that in five years we're not coming home and the work stops. Um, he has such a desire to see a church planted and has such a desire to see our church be a part of that church being planted there. Um, and so we're going to need new families, and, and ideally families that come because they've been converted to the gospel and not just families relocating from other churches. Um, but we want to pray this morning for new families and new converts. And I think we can pray specifically that God brings us families uh, that are equipped to help us do this. And I think one area of weakness right now um, that we've been in conversations about as leadership is that we desire for God to bring families uh, that are coming with, with teenaged age kids because that's an area of weakness for our church right now. Um, we've got kids that are growing up into the youth age right now, and our nursery and our kids' class is great, and they've got friends, and they've got people to interact with. We don't have a lot of teenage kids right now. And so those that are coming are limited in their exposure to other kids their age. And so we can get together for men's dinners and women's dinners and, and, and all these events and connecting points and, and think, hey, our, you know, we're flourishing. We've got fellowship opportunities. And, and that's not always the case for everybody in our church. And so um, praying that God will send specifically families uh, that are newly converted that can also enhance uh, some of the deficient areas in our church family. Number two, leadership that can teach. Um, as we desire to plant a church uh, in the surrounding areas, we desire to plant a church overseas. It necessitates us not just raising up deacons, but raising up elders. And that's where we're limited as elders, because it's easy for us to go and say, hey, um, would you consider being a deacon? Because the Bible really talks about the qualifications of a deacon being possessed by all people in the church. But there's something unique about an elder in the church. One is that it's supposed to be something that God initiates in that person's heart where they desire that position. They're not asked to do it. They desire to do it. Something that's supernatural that the Holy Spirit does. So as elders, we have to sit back and wait, right? Like I can't go and grab somebody and say, hey, I think you'd be a great elder. Let's start training you to do so. I have to wait on somebody to come to me and say, hey, I think God wants me to be an elder, I feel like the Holy Spirit is really moving in my heart to do this, and, and he's equipping me. And so for us as elders, we're in, a, we're in a holding pattern. We can't plant another church until God raises up more leadership that desires to teach. And then number three, number, number three, number three uh, families that are willing to move to Uganda. Um, for us to plant a church over there, then we're going to need people that are willing to go and to be a part of that movement. And so that kind of leads into the final point of discussion for this morning is that we are planning trips to Uganda. Um, we've, we've had some preliminary talks with Chris. As elders, we met recently. 
um, the last thing that we want is for them to feel like they've been forgotten, that they moved away, sold everything, and they get periodic calls from us, a letter here or there. We want them to really know that we have not forgotten them and that we are partnering with them in ministry. And so our desire is to send people often to visit with them and to interact with them and to encourage them so that they can continue to persevere in, in being away from their own family and their own um, friends here. Um, and so we want you praying about going, not praying about moving there. We hope that as people go, God just supernaturally calls people to do that, right? Like we're not gonna ever come to you and say, hey, we think you should move to Uganda. Just like we're not gonna come to you and say, hey, you should be an elder. We hope that God calls people as people go and visit. Um, and God's not gonna call everybody. And so we're not saying, hey, we only want people to go that are considered moving there. This is for anybody and everybody that wants to go and see what Chris and Melissa are doing to better understand the ministry that they have there and what we want to do long-term there. Um, So just to give you kind of an idea of timeline, Chris and Melissa have left. They do not plan to come back for a visit here until about a year and a couple of months from now. So Chris said they hope to be back um, for Thanksgiving a year from now, basically. So a little over a year is when they plan to come back and visit. We would like to send a group of people in February coming up. So um, in just the next few months, we'd like to send people in February. Lauren and I are making plans to go now. So we're starting to get our passports. We're starting to get uh, things lined up for us to get shots. Um, We would like to take a group in February, specifically around um, the fall break month. So for those that immediately are thinking, hey, that might be something that I would want to do, it would be... The dates of that trip would be, um, and I'm going to post this on the city. It would be, um, it would be February 16th on Jeremy Forbes's 30th birthday. Um, <laughs> uh, we would leave on the 16th uh, that evening and come back either the Saturday the 25th um, or Sunday the 26th. Um, so we'd spend about 10 days in Uganda. Um, or seven days in Uganda with the other days factoring in for travel. Um, cost of that trip, ticket-wise, right now, is right around $1,100, which is a great price. Chris has paid upwards of over $2,000 at times. That price won't hold for long. Um, and obviously, this trip's coming up very soon. So passports and shots and that kind of stuff would have to happen quickly. So anybody interested in that would need to make decisions soon to hold that price um, and to get everything in order. But we felt like it was good to get people over as soon as possible so that we don't lose sight of the fact that they need us there. You know, if we just said, hey, we're going to wait till the summertime, things pop up, things come up, it'd be easy for us to lose sight of the fact that we didn't send anybody and all of a sudden it's November, Thanksgiving, and they come home and we never got around to sending anybody. I don't want that to be the case. So we're planning to take a trip February for anybody that's interested. Um, We are also looking to take a trip that Tyson would lead, possibly with Sarah, depending on the birth of their child and and how that's going, because she'll be, I think their child would be about three months old at the time. We're looking at taking a trip uh, June, and we haven't figured out why this is the case, but if you go June 1st, a Thursday, and again come back on Saturday the 10th or the 11th, cost of that trip is right around $1,100. If you go any other week in the summer, it's over two. We don't know why. Um, somebody knows something that we don't, but um, half the cost if we go June 1st 
um, to June 10th, I think it is. So again, about the same time frame. Um, you're looking at, for those that work, taking about a week off of work um, to make it happen. Um, it'd be awesome to take uh, a two-week trip, but I know a lot of people couldn't do that. Um, and so the plan is to go for about 10 days. So trip in February, trip in June, then Chris and Melissa come home from Thanksgiving until about New Year's, and then they go back. And then we would like to take a trip again that next summer that Adam McLeod would hopefully be able to lead. Um, and then hopefully we would take another trip that February because they won't come home for Christmas and Thanksgiving um, that hopefully Lauren and I could then lead again that next February. Um, so four trips in about two and a half years is what our goal is. Um, we want as many of you to come and go with us as are able. We are intentionally spacing out the elders so that we aren't going together so that we're able to lead and help organize and really make sure the trip happens and it doesn't just give, get left to chance. We really want to be intentional that we're going to take people four times over the next two and a half years. Again, if we do it right, the cost of the ticket should be less than $1,500. Um, that's for you to be thinking about and whether you can financially manage that. You'll remember we started asking you guys to pray about being able to give an extra $1,000 to be able to save if you couldn't give, to start saving for a trip, to use that as your way of ministering to them. Um, and so we want to we give you real dates and real numbers because we're not going to just leave it open-ended. We really are going to take trips. We've talked about taking trips in the past that have fallen through. These are going to happen. And we'd love for you to come and be a part of those trips with us. And we want you to be praying about that. Ideally, we could only take about four total people if we're going to stay at their house but Melissa's assured me that right down the road we can rent hotel rooms and, and expand the amount of people that we take. So we're not going to really cap it unless everybody wants to go on one trip. Um, we're purposefully telling you of the other trips so that you don't fear missing your one chance to go if you don't go on this one. We're going to take multiple ones because every elder plans to go and we're not going together so that we intentionally make sure that all these trips happen. Um, so February, June, the next June probably, and then the next February um, for you to be thinking through about trips that you might want to take with us um, to see what they're doing over there, okay? Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to pray specifically um, for the God who holds the future in these specific areas, um, that God would bring new families and new converts to our church, that leadership would be raised up, and that as we start to send families and, and individuals to encourage Chris and Melissa that Lord willing, God would raise up people from within this church to go and stay like they have um, so that a church can be planted there as well. Let's pray. God, we do thank you so much for this passage of Scripture here in Genesis, um, a passage that uh, certainly reminds us of the good that can be accomplished in the midst of trials. Um, God, I pray that we would be mindful of new ministry opportunities that you afford to us when we go through difficult circumstances. Things as minor as a flat tire to things as big and as uh, heartbreaking and sorrowful as um, a major disease. God, we recognize that um, uncertainty around employment, um, sickness, uh, things that are not desirable by us, but are useful to you because it puts us in contact and connection with people that otherwise we would have never known. God, I pray that we would be mindful of ministry opportunities much like Joseph was with the butler and the baker. That when they came into his life and were discouraged and downtrodden, that he was able to be used by you in their life. God, I pray that we would be mindful and sensitive to those around us. That we would not be
be so inward focused about what we're dealing with that we would be very intentional to help others who are experiencing similar situations. God, I pray that you'd guard us and protect us from feeling forgotten, that when we do reach out and share with others things that we're going through and maybe we don't have them ministering to us in ways that we would prefer, God, help us to remember that you don't forget us and that you remain with us in the midst of our sufferings. God, help us to find hope and encouragement in the fact that you are a God who by very definition is God because you orchestrate the events of the past in connection with the events of the future for your purposes. And God, we, we find great assurance in that this morning, that no matter what we're dealing with and no matter what we will deal with in the future, we can trust and know that you are a God who does things for purposes beyond our imagination and that you do things exactly in the precise timing that you desire to do them. And God, we pray specifically for that timing and for those purposes in the uh, area of our church. Lord, we're asking that you would continue to send families to our church, individuals to our church, specifically people who have come to know Christ because of our ministry efforts, people that we've had conversations with at work, people within our families that we're sharing the gospel with, those people would come to know Christ and join themselves to this local church. God, for families that are um, looking for new churches in the area, people that have moved here, uh, people that for circumstances um, beyond their control feel the need to leave their current church, God, that you would draw them to sovereign hope, specifically bringing people that can contribute to this unique church family here. God, we pray that you would increase in the areas of deficiency right now as far as certain age ranges, people that can come in and, uh, and build that group, uh, an area of encouragement, um, an area of connection and involvement that's needed. God, I pray that you would bring those people to us. Father, I pray that as our church continues to grow, that you would raise up men within this church who you are calling to lead through teaching. God, I pray that you would uh, use your Holy Spirit to draw upon those men's heart and to create that desire for elder leadership. Men who would feel compelled to, to pastor a church in this area. Men who would feel the need and, and calling to, to pastor a church overseas. Um, God, these are big goals that we have for the advancement of the gospel and things that we have to sit back and wait patiently for you to deliver. And so God, I pray that you would, as the, uh, as the being who controls everything, who controls our future, that you would bring uh, in your timing and according to your will these things. God, we pray that you would be with Chris and Melissa this morning, that you would encourage them. Uh, God, we thank you for their sacrifice and the example they are to us. Father, I pray that you would enable us to take these trips that we desire to take, um, that you would provide the, the resources and the finances needed for us to be able to do this. Um, God, I pray that you would um, make it possible for individuals to get off work, to be able to go. And God, I pray that in us going, you would open the eyes of some of those that you would desire to go and to stay. Um, and God, I pray that you would make that happen. Um, and God, we pray that you would continue to lead us and guide us as a church as we seek to do these things for your glory. God, I pray that whatever we face this week, um, that we would be reminded that you've called us to serve faithfully and to trust you unconditionally. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.